Please rise for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, Jesus went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both cattle and sheep. He scattered the coins of the money changes and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. We're going to leave verses 23 through 25 until next week as Marty preaches on Nicodemus. Those verses introduce Nicodemus. This morning we're studying the cleansing of the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would continue to be at work cleansing your temple even us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Back in the 1980s when we were meeting in a school, we were meeting at Gordon Elementary School as a church, we would have uh, yard sales as a church. We would raise funds for uh, a building campaign or for a missions trip. We would do it for special purposes and we often would use the school across the street. We met in Gordon Elementary School in Smoke Tree, but we'd have these yard sales here, and we could point across the street where there was a sign, Future Site of Sycamore Presbyterian Church. And we did that until an elder in one of our session meetings said, why are we trying to raise money from the world to support the mission of the church? And once it was said, it was like, wow, that, that's, that's right. We support the mission of the church out of our giving not by becoming the marketplace from the church. And we changed our policy a little bit and said, it's great for people to think, I want to support this uh, missions trip or this special cause by having a yard sale so they could gather together with uh, friends perhaps and sell the goods. You could donate the money from that uh, to the cause. But there's a difference between that and putting up the banner, Sycamore Presbyterian Church Yard Sale, and asking the world to come and support our ministries by giving to the church. And the passage that we referred to was this passage about how the, the temple area was turned into a marketplace and that we shouldn't do that. And I think that's a valid application of this passage. We do have a caveat in our policy uh, for our teenagers that are, uh, are in school. Not, they don't have the jobs of their own. 
it's appropriate when they're going on a missions trip to be able to have resources to give from their own funds. And so we'll have projects like yard work and things like that that people in the congregation uh, can uh, employ them to do as they raise funds. But it's not so that they're being a marketplace, it's so that they have income so that they can give themselves you know, to, to the trip. That's the caveat in our church policy about this. But I would propose to you this morning that if our only application is that we shouldn't uh, have fundraisers as a church like that, uh, or we shouldn't have a bookstore in the church, so many churches have bookstores, or we, we go down that road somehow, then we're missing the deeper application of this passage. This passage is about much more than that. In the first place, the temple and the church building are not quite the same thing. The temple was the very dwelling place of God in the Old Testament among his people. We are the gathering place of the people of God. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's look first at how the temple was abused. The temple abused, then we'll look at the temple cleanse, and then we'll look at the temple that cleanses. And hidden in this outline in your bulletin is the last point of application. That is, the temple that cleanses the temple. I'm going to let that hang out there for you a little bit mysteriously right now. Let's look at the temple abused. Jesus came and cleared the temple. It's called in the ESV and in many translations, the cleansing of the temple. And when he came to the temple, what he found were people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others exchanging money. I find it so rich, the way the scriptures uh, speak to us, that we continually learn something new. I've always thought of the cleansing of the temple more in the light of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus came at the end of his earthly ministry, when he came to Jerusalem to be handed over, to be crucified, uh, to be uh, dead and buried, and to rise again. That was the last week of his life. He came to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's something more intense uh, then, and I've always kind of converged the two together, conflated the two together, and I thought of Jesus making this whip and driving people out with his ire and righteous indignation. That's not quite the way I think it plays out. In the first place, uh, there is an issue about, well, why does John record this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? There were three years of ministry, three different passes, Passover feasts. This would have been the first one. And then when he came to be crucified, it would have been the third Passover. Why did John record it here? Which time did it happen? Most interpreters think that it was legitimate for John to take an event from the end of Jesus' ministry and for thematic reasons to make his preaching point to bring it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry because John is talking about how the old jars of cleansing, remember the miracle last week when Jesus turned the water to wine? He filled those vast jars that were the jars for cleansing to the brim. But 150 gallons of water would not have helped that you know, need at the wedding when they ran out of wine. And the point that John is making here and that Jesus was making is that all that the Old Testament could do with its cleansing only promised 
cleansing from sin, but it couldn't accomplish it. It needed the miraculous work of Christ to fulfill all that it was promised. In that theme, in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is doing the same thing. When he cleanses the temples, that's like filling the jars for cleansing to the brim. He makes the temple right the way it should be. He makes worship in the temple. He restores worship in the temple to what it ought to be. But if he had only done that and stopped there, we would still be in their sins. The temple and the worship of the temple with all of its sacrifices promised forgiveness for sin, promised cleansing for sin, but couldn't accomplish it. It took the work of Jesus to fulfill it so that the Old Testament worship fulfilled in Christ becomes the gospel where he is our lamb, he is our substitute, he is the one that pays our penalty so that we can be cleansed and we're given his righteousness so that we can stand before God and belong in heaven. That is an absolutely true point. And commentators will think, well, that's John's theme, so that's why he draws uh, the uh, cleansing of the temple from the end of Jesus' ministry and puts it up front. But I'm in the camp, and actually I found that D.A. Carson backs me up, my go-to commentary, that there are two cleansings. There are distinctions between these two cleansings. Uh, In the first case in John uh, Jesus calls uh, the in, in the first case Jesus says you've turned my father's house into a marketplace in the synoptic gospels what does he say it's the more familiar saying my father's house is a house of prayer how dare you turn it into a den of thieves or robbers and now he's conflating the two I thought the problem was the corruption of the money changing, that they were charging too much for it. They were taking advantage of people that would come from a distance to worship God in Jerusalem. And they had to have, depending on your income and your uh, ability, you had to have the cow, the the lamb, or, or the doves, depending on the sacrifice sometimes. You needed those things to sacrifice. You couldn't bring them from home if you were coming from afar. So it was a necessary thing. And the the money changers and those selling uh, the the animals used for sacrifice were taking advantage of the people. It was corrupt in a financial way. But Jesus doesn't call them, at the beginning of John, a den of thieves. He says, you've turned my father's house into a place of trade, into a marketplace. Now, at first, they set up these shops across the valley on the Mount of Olives so that people could come and buy their sacrifices. People could come with different coinage from all over the Roman world and change their money so that they could have the appropriate kind of coin to offer uh, in the temple. And uh, that was a very legitimate thing to do. And there's no hint that they were being usurious, that they were charging too much for their practice. That wasn't the problem. The problem is that they took what was a good thing, a legitimate thing, and put it in the wrong place. In the place that was to be a place dedicated to the worship of God, they were turning it into a marketplace. In the Synoptic Gospels, at the end of Jesus' ministry, why does he call it a den of robbers? You've turned it into a den of thieves. It's not because they're robbing the people of their money. Jesus, by that time, had taught what John records for us, that when Jesus said, 
I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. All who came before me were robbers and thieves. They weren't robbing the people of their money. They were robbing the people of the true worship of God. By the end of Jesus' ministry, it was clear he was telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to be handed over to the chief priests and to be crucified. He knows what they're out to do. And he calls the the religious leaders robbers because they're misleading the people. They are stealing God from the people of God. They're stealing the people of God from God. They are rejecting Jesus, the one who fulfilled all that was promised in these sacrifices, and yet selling the animals for sacrifices, becoming obstacles between the people of God and God for the forgiveness of their their sins. That's how they were a den of robbers. But this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And as he cleanses the temple, it's it's a little uh, gentler touch. You've turned my father's house into a marketplace. That doesn't mean he's not zealous. The disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus is earnest in doing this. But it's not as categorical as in the last uh, week of his life. When he called, he said, you're turning my father's house into a den of robbers. Secondly, this is the only place that mentions the whip. And it's interesting in John, when it mentions the whip, John also mentions the cattle, sheep, and doves. The people in the temple courts were selling cattle, sheep, and doves. I always pictured in my mind, did you, that Jesus made this whip and he went in, bang, bang, cracking the whip against the people. That was for dramatic effect. I should use that more often, wake you up. And in that dramatic, and in, in uh, cracking the whip and driving the people out, it just seems he is so angry. Actually, if you're going to get a cow to move, do you know what you need? You need a crop. This is really a tool suited for what John says he's doing in driving uh, the people out. He's also driving the animals out. So it, it radically changed the way I thought of what Jesus was doing. He is cleansing the temple. By, he made the whip, and he goes in, and he's getting those cows and the sheep and the other animals for sacrifice out, and he's turning over the tables, and he's saying, don't do this. Get this stuff out of here. But he's not whipping, lashing the people. That's not what's being described here. And the synoptic gospels, where Jesus is more irate and calling them a den of robbers, don't mention him making a whip and cracking it on the people. Interesting note. I think that there are two cleansings, the one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one later. And the abuse, there's interesting application here for us. The abuse is not that they are robbing the people with corrupt financial practices, charging exorbitant fees for the sacrifices that were necessary. It's easy for us to think, yes, we ought to rid ourselves of things that are sinful, and we certainly should. The problem is we can take things that are good in and of themselves and give them the wrong place in our lives as those good things become our idols. They're more important than the worship of God. How many of us, is there anyone here who cannot claim to have always worshipped God in spirit and truth and not been thinking about a responsibility going on on Monday or later in the week? Not one of us. 
It's so easy for us, to, for our minds to be on the marketplace, on the responsibilities, on those things out there, instead of really worshiping God in spirit and truth and being grounded again in his grace so that we're equipped then to leave the place and go out to do the things that are legitimate and good. You know, family, job, even the sports and recreation and the, the blessings we have and pleasures in life, there's so many good things that are, in themselves are foretastes of heaven. They're good things. But when they become idols and they are, the, they are our focus in worship, then we're much more like the money changers than we might think. We're not truly worshiping God. So this difference in understanding, uh, instead of thinking he's driving corrupt practices out of the temple, makes the application nearer to us. He's driving things that are appropriate in themselves out of the temple because you're in the wrong place in their lives. What are the things that are in the wrong place in our hearts? So that's the temple abused. And Jesus cleanses the temple. The second point is, it's is obvious. It's easy just to go on uh, from it because he drives it out. And the disciples notice that he's zealous. Zeal for your house has consumed me. It's an Old Testament prophecy about what God would do through his servant, his anointed one. Zeal for your house will consume me. It literally consumes Jesus. It's not just the passion consumes him. He went to the cross we call the cross his passion. That's his zeal. His zeal is such that he went and sacrificed himself to pay for our sins that we can be cleansed. Now, when Jesus cleansed the temple and made the temple uh, and drove all the, the marketplace out of the temple, if he had not gone to the cross and, and uh, cleansed and provided for the cleansing from our sins, the temple couldn't have accomplished anything. He cleansed that temple to bring it up to snuff. But then he points to the next thing that fulfills the temple. The, the Pharisees, or the, the Jews, demanded of Jesus, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Now that's really interesting right there. If Jesus were just being a vandal and he were breaking and entering, that kind of thing, they could just have had him arrested and thrown in prison. This was the beginning of his ministry before he was so popular, the end of his ministry. Where they come and they kind of recognize his leadership. They recognize that he has an authority that mystifies them. They object to what he's doing, but they don't just have him arrested. They ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And the, what they demand is a sign. What miraculous sign that will prove you are from God and you can cleanse the temple. The temple's our responsibility, not yours, Jesus. Now, beyond thinking of Jesus as God the Son, incarnate, fully divine, fully human, I would also propose to you Jesus was just a genius. I often don't put it that way. But the way he teaches, it so confounds those who would try to trap him or, or stop him or critique him. This is how he responds about that sign. He said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, this comes back to haunt Jesus two years later when he's arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. 
False witnesses step up to accuse them, but they can't get their story straight. Finally, they have witnesses that step up and say, this man said, I will destroy the temple and will raise it up in three days. And guess what? That was a capital offense in in the Roman world. To destroy a place of worship, whether it be a synagogue or a pagan temple, was a capital offense. And Jesus did say, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And that was a charge that stuck. And they began to use that as, as an excuse to crucify Jesus. Now, what's interesting about the report two years later when they said, this man said, I will destroy the temple. Fake news didn't begin in our generation. Do you see the twist in what they said? Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. He said, it's a dare, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now for the, the Jews to, uh, to accept his dare, they would have had to destroy the temple. They weren't about to do that. For him. So then Jesus said, well, you're not going to destroy the temple. I can't show my miraculous sign to you by raising it up in three days. He confounded them. They were stymied. They were stuck. They, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And the underlying uh, implication is, by no means are we going to destroy this to see if you can. But they couldn't object to his sign because they wouldn't. They wouldn't take action themselves over the physical temple. The disciples themselves didn't understand this. That's one of those enigmas that Jesus would say. That after he was crucified and after he was resurrected, they remembered he had said it. And it's like, now I understand. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead... His disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. At this point, they probably thought, say what? Why would you destroy this temple? How could you raise it up? They might have been confounded like the Pharisees. The the Jewish leaders were confounded. But they still followed Jesus. And by following Jesus, they ended up finding in the end, That's what he was talking about. If you ever had that experience, you learn something in Scripture. You just can't quite get your hands around it. You don't understand how it works out, and then God does something in your life, brings brings you through, perhaps it's a difficult time, or he he works his hand in something else, and you go, that's what he was talking about. That was the experience of the disciples here about this, and they believe the Scripture, the words that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus was referring to his body as the temple. Now, was this just a metaphor? No, it wasn't a metaphor. What is a temple? A temple is the very dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, when God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, he led them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. It's the same pillar. It's just in the daytime, it's the cloudiness that's most emphasized. At night, the fire is showing through. It was the glory presence of God leading his people through the wilderness. He had them build a tabernacle. It was a tent temple. And the glory presence of God would rest upon the tabernacle. And when the glory presence was resting on the tabernacle, they would encamp around it in the wilderness. 
When the glory presence of God moved, they followed God through the wilderness. It was literally the dwelling place of the glory of God among his people. When the temple was built, the glory came upon the temple. You can go to the Old Testament passages and and find how the glory of the Lord descended on the temple. One of the saddest parts of scripture is when Israel had turned away from God and they were being taken away into exile. You have the picture of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. So when we realize the temple is the place that God would make himself manifest, his presence, he's everywhere, but there's a special way that he was present among his people. Then we realize Jesus was quite literally the temple of God. John says yeah, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, made his dwelling place in a human body. His body was the temple of God the Son. So Jesus was quite literally the temple. He wasn't using a metaphor, and he knew that his body would be crucified on the cross. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up on the third day. And the disciples finally understood that and and believed. Now, here's the thing. It was by, by his sacrifice of his body, the temple being destroyed, that he truly cleansed his temple. His temple is not the building. What is his temple? What's the dwelling place of God now? Is it not you and me, Christians, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, reflecting this language, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. This gets to a lot closer personal application for us because Jesus is still cleansing his temple. He not only provides for our justification, our pardon for sin, he cleanses us in that way, but he also cleans us up in our lives. He cleanses us in the ongoing work of the Spirit. Paul, in chapter 6 uh, of his letter to the Corinthians, uh, applies it to the issue of, of sexual immorality. Verse 18 of chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So we come to this application. The temple that cleanses is Jesus himself. He cleanses us ultimately by a sacrifice on the cross, justifying us, giving us his righteousness, giving us forgiveness of sins. But he continually cleanses his temple, you and me, as he grows us up in our faith. And we put off the the things of, of the flesh. It can be sexual immorality. It can be marketplace uh, money changer. Our, you know, one can serve God and money at the same. What's your idol? You know, what's most important to you? Everything that is 
uh, you know, independent uh, of God. He, he calls us, he, he cleanses us and calls us to be wholehearted with him. Now, is this good news for you or bad news? The Christ is still at work cleaning you up. Do you think, oh, but the Christian way of life is so constraining. It's just so tight and bound up. I can never have any fun. If that's the way you think, you're more on the side of the money changers in the temple who thought, this was a good thing. This was a good idea. There's nothing wrong with what we were doing. We were providing a service to the people, and they were missing the point that it was really dedicated to worship. They were more into their business, even if it was legitimate. Do you let good things become your idols, most important to you? And do you think it's so constraining to follow Christ? That's just the devil's lie. Because there's, there's a joy and peace that comes with saying, Christ, I'm all yours. In every part of my life, my job, my family, uh, my, my leisure pursuits, my, my pleasures, my, my sports, they're all under your lordship, and I want to please you in them. Cleanse me of God. And you find a peace and a joy and a contentment of soul, uh, whatever he, he brings into your life as you follow him in that way. Do you want God to cleanse you? Jesus is the temple that cleanses us who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we read this and, and we understand that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, that zeal for my Father's house will consume me. We are that house, and he is zealous for us. He gave his life for us. He calls us to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. I pray that we would not be divided at heart, but that we would be wholehearted and so know the joy of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.